You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. We'll move on next week to Andrew. Today's key verse on Peter's life, I think one of the pivotal statements Jesus spoke to him was this. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Can you that reference Luke 22, 31, and 32. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this warm weather. I thank you for this church and the eagerness for everybody here to learn. I thank you so much for the impact that Peter's life has had on me already, just in how much we've learned from his life and how you've worked in his life, Lord. And It's just amazing how you can use each and every person and, and you have a plan for everybody's life and, and your ultimate plan, Lord. I pray that we open our eyes and, and hearts and minds to what it is you have for us to do, Lord, and, and give us a, a willingness to do your will. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see in Peter's life three key elements that go into the making of a true leader. We've already gone over how Peter had the right raw materials. He had insatiable curiosity, a willingness to take the initiative, and a passion to be personally involved. Then we looked at how Peter had the right life experiences God had planned for him to go through in order to shape him into the leader he wanted. And then we started last week on the right character qualities, which we had character submission, restraint, and now we will continue looking at the character qualities that define a true leader, beginning with humility. This, I feel like, is a, I mean, they're all super important, but this one, if we're not willing to be humble ourselves, then people, we just would not reach people the way God intended. So, he, Peter, had to learn humility. That's not something that came naturally to him, nor does it most people. Leaders are often tempted by the sin of pride. In fact, the besetting sin of leadership may be the tendency to think more of themselves than they ought to think. When people are following your lead, constantly praising you, looking up to you, and admiring you, it is too easy to be overcome with pride. We can observe in Peter a tremendous amount of self-confidence. It is obvious, by the way, he jumps in with answers to all the questions that he has confidence. Somebody who doesn't have that kind of confidence wouldn't jump in immediately and, and give answers. It is obvious in most of his actions, such as when he stepped out of the boat and began to walk on water, he had confidence. If you don't have confidence, there's no way you would do this, such a thing. It became obvious in the worst and most disastrous way on that fateful occasion when Jesus foretold that his disciples would forsake him. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 31, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But Peter was arrogantly confident, and he came back and said, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never offend thee. Then he continued and said, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Those are two statements of confidence he had in himself. As usual, Peter was wrong, and Jesus was right, though. As we recall, Peter did deny Christ not once, but three times, just as Jesus had warned him. Peter's shame 
and disgrace at having dishonored Jesus so openly were only magnified by the fact that he had boasted so stubbornly about being incapable of such a thing. He, he, he told Jesus straight to his face, there's no way I will ever do this. In fact, I'm ready to go to death or prison for you. And then later that night, he denied him three times anyway. It's just crazy. So that right there was a huge disgrace to him. He, he realized, especially when Jesus turned and looked at him, it all set in that he told him, I'm going, you're going to do this. And he had, he had this self-confidence and pride that there is no way I could do that. But he did anyway. The Lord used all of this to make Peter humble. And when Peter wrote his first epistle, he said in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God re reciteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He specifically told church leaders in verse 3, neither as being, in other words, don't act like lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock, be examples to them. Humility became one of the virtues that characterized his life and his message and his leadership style. It's a huge contrast when he starts writing his epistles and, and talking about humility versus when he told Jesus, there's no way I would do this. But because of how Jesus used these moments, he learned what humility was and learned how he, he needed to get rid of that pride. There's a difference between self-confidence and having confidence in what Jesus has, has called you to do and having a pride saying that you're better than these sins. You're, there's no way I can do that. So there's the difference. Now we move on to love. This one, and we know, is, is one of the most important things because Jesus told us to love one another as one of his commandments. Peter also learned love. All the disciples struggled with learning that true spiritual leadership means loving service to one another. The real leader is someone who serves, not someone who demands to be waited upon. This is a hard lesson for many leaders to learn. They tend to see people as a means to their end, that how can they use them? Leaders are usually task-oriented rather than people-oriented, so they often use people or plow over people in order to achieve their goals. Peter and the rest of the disciples needed to learn that leadership is rooted and grounded in loving service to others. Jesus said in Mark 9:35, "If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all." The Lord himself constantly molded that kind of loving servant leadership for the disciples. But nowhere is it more plainly on display than in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. Turn with me to John 13. And we'll look at that, that story. Jesus and the disciples had come to celebrate the Passover in a rented room in Jerusalem. People who celebrated in that culture usually reclined at a low table rather than sitting upright in chairs. That meant one person's head would be next to another person's feet. Of course, all the roads were either muddy or dusty, so feet were constantly dirty. Therefore, the common custom in that, in that culture was that when you went into a house for a meal, there was usually a servant whose job was to wash their feet. This was particularly, the this specifically was the low, lowest and least desirable of all the jobs you could have. On this busy Passover night, 
In that rented room, no provision had been made for any servant to wash the guest's feet. The disciples were evidently prepared to overlook that breach of etiquette rather than volunteering to do that task themselves. Since it wasn't, there wasn't somebody there to do it, they just were like, well, we'll just ignore it. It's not that big a deal. So they gathered around the table as if they were prepared to start the feast without any foot washing. Therefore, Scripture says, Jesus himself started speaking in verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4. Riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. So Jesus himself, the one they rightly called Lord, took on the role of the lowest slave and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. According to Luke, at about the same time this occurred, the disciples were in the midst of a argument about which of them was going to be the greatest. And you can see that in 22, verse 24, Luke 22, 24. They were interested in being elevated, not humiliated. So Jesus did what none of them were willing to do. He gave them a lesson about the humility of genuine love. Most of them probably sat there in stunned silence when they saw him doing this. But when the Lord came to Simon Peter, in verse 6, Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Basically, he was saying, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> like, you shouldn't be doing this. Here is that brash and bold Simon speaking without carefully thinking things through. He even went on to say in verse 8, thou shalt never wash my feet. Peter was the master of absolute statements. He said, I will never defy you or deny you. You shall never wash my feet. So there's no middle ground in Peter's life. Everything is either black or white. But Jesus came back in verse 8 and said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Jesus, though, was speaking of the necessity of spiritual cleansing. Obviously, it wasn't the literal foot washing that made the disciples fit for fellowship with Jesus. He was speaking about cleansing from sin. That was the spiritual reality this humble act of foot washing was meant to symbolize. So Peter's answer is typical of his usual whole, you know, unbridled wholeheartedness. The way he, he came about things, he just didn't think it through, and he, just, he boldly stated, you should not be doing this. But in verse 9, he said, Lord, not my feet only after he realized what Jesus was saying, but also my hands and my head. Again, there was never any middle ground with Peter. It was always all or nothing. So when Jesus assured him that he was already completely clean, the Lord was speaking in spiritual terms about forgiveness and clean, cleansing from sin. Peter now needed nothing more than a foot washing. In other words, Peter, as a believer, was already fully justified. The forgiveness and cleansing he needed was not the kind of pardon you would seek from the judge of the universe, as if Peter was seeking to have his eternal destiny settled. He had already received that kind of cleansing and forgiveness from God. But now Peter was coming to God as a kid would approach a parent, seeking fatherly grace and forgiveness for his wrongdoings. That was the kind of cleansing Peter actually needed. It is the same kind of forgiveness Jesus taught all believers to pray for daily in the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here, Jesus likens such daily forgiveness to a foot washing. So instead of your, your eternal forgiveness, this was a continual 
daily thing that you need to do, come to him and ask for forgiveness for the, the continual things that you're, you're doing against him to get right with him and back in fellowship with him. So those truths were all wrapped up in the symbolism when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. But the central lesson was about the way love ought to be shown. Jesus' example was a complete act of loving, lowly service. So later that evening, after Judas had left, Jesus told the other eleven, in verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. So after all this, after he lowered himself, he then says, As I have loved you in this way, you should love one another, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So how had he loved them? He washed their feet. He did something that nobody in that room was willing to do. While they were arguing about who was the greatest, he showed them what loving, humble service for one another looks like. It's hard for most leaders to lower themselves and wash the feet of those whom they perceive as subordinates. Imagine a CEO of a, a company, a huge company, let's say, let's say it's Google, for instance, coming down and working with the, the, the interns and, and serving them food and, and doing something for them. They probably, their minds will be blown, like there's no way this guy should be doing this. But it, this is on a grander scheme. It's the Lord of, of everything, the creator of all, washing the feet of the disciples, the most unworthy men in the universe, or especially in you know, our minds. So did Peter, through all this, learn what it was to love and lower himself? Yes. Love became one of the hallmarks of his teaching. In 1 Peter 4, 8, he wrote, And above all things, have fervent charity. The word charity is in the Greek, ho agape, love. So this word charity is, means love, agape love. So have, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. The, the Greek word translated fervent in that verse is ektenis, literally meaning stretched to the limit. Peter was urging us to love to the maximum of our capacity, as much as we possibly can. The love he spoke of is not about a feeling. It's not about how we respond to people who are naturally lovable. It's about a love that covers and compensates for all others' failures and weaknesses. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. That This right here is the sort of love that washes a brother's dirty feet. Peter himself had learned that lesson from Jesus' example that night. Now we move on to compassion. Another important character quality Peter needed to learn, and we all need to learn, is compassion. When the Lord warned Peter that he would deny him, he said, Simon, Simon, twice, not just once, but Simon being a big blow to his ego, he said it twice, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. He was asking for you that he may sift you as wheat. Wheat was typically separated from the chaff by being shaken and tossed up into the air in a stiff wind. The chaff was blown away and the wheat would fall into a pile, therefore purified. We might have expected Jesus to pressure Peter by saying, I'm not going to allow Satan to sift you, but he didn't. He essentially let Peter know that he had given Satan the permission he sought. He would allow the devil to put Peter to the test, as he did, as God did in the case of Job. 
very similar. He said, in an essence, I'm going to let him do it. I'm going to let Satan shake the very foundations of your life. Then I'm going to let him toss you to the wind until there's nothing left but the reality of your faith. That's what he was saying. Jesus did reassure Peter, though, that the apostles' faith would survive the ordeal because he went on to say, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. It was then that Peter arrogantly insisted that he would never stumble. Yet despite his uh, despite him saying these aren't going to happen, before the night was over, he did deny Jesus, and his whole world was shaken that night because he realized how weak he really was in his own strength. His ego was deflated. His self-confidence was completely annihilated. His pride suffered, and his faith, though, through all of that, never failed because he kept going. What was this all about? Jesus was equipping Peter to strengthen his brethren. So through all of this, through, through breaking him down and, and, and getting rid of all the nonsense and just showing him what, his, what the faith was going to need to be, that was going to help him strengthen his brothers. People with natural leadership abilities often tend to be short on compassion, lousy comforters, and impatient with others. They don't stop very long to care for the wounded as they pursue their goals. Peter needed to learn compassion through his own ordeal so that when it was over, he could strengthen others in their ordeals, their trials. We should look at the times in our lives when we are being sifted and going through difficulties as times when God is preparing us for when our brothers and sisters need us. He's giving us an opportunity to share the experience with somebody, have compassion and love for them. For the rest of his life, Peter would need to show compassion to people who were struggling. After being sifted by Satan, Peter was well equipped to emphasize or empathize not emphasize, empathize with other weaknesses. He could hardly help having great compassion for those who had already fallen to temptation or fell into sin. He had been there. Because of that, he was able to understand them. Having compassion is to be able to understand what somebody's going through and share that with them. And by that experience, he learned to be compassionate, tender-hearted and gracious, kind, comforting to others who were cut by sin and personal failure. We see this because in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, he wrote, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He'd already experienced that, so he, he wants to, everybody to know this. And he goes on in verse 9, Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren, brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, it make you perfect. It, after you've suffered a while, it'll make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, and settle you. Through all this, it will settle, it'll, it'll get rid of the chaff and yield the, the crop that Jesus is preparing for you. Peter understood human weakness, and he understood it well. He had been to the bottom. I can't imagine having been there saying that I won't deny Jesus and then doing it three times and then Jesus looking at me. <laughs> like, that's the bottom. I, I feel like in my life I've been to the bottom and I've pleaded for God to, to get me through it, but man, 
that would have been a blow for me. That would have been hard. So his own weakness had been thrown in his face, but he had been perfected, established, strengthened, and settled by Jesus. As usual, he was writing out of his own experience. These were not theoretical principles he was teaching. This was from his own life. He wanted to share and encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ that this is okay. Like, we've, I've been through this, you will get through this, and because of that, your faith will be stronger. Then <clears throat> we move on to courage, the final part of what it, what it means to be a leader. Finally, he had to learn true courage, not impulsive, thoughtless, the false kind of courage that caused him to swing his sword so crazy at Malchus, but a mature, settled, fearless willingness to suffer for Jesus' sake. That was the kind of courage he needed. The kingdom of darkness is set against the kingdom of light. Lies are set against the truth. Satan is set against God, and demons are set against the holy purposes of Christ. Therefore, Peter would face difficulty wherever he was going to go. Christ told him in John 21, 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. So what does that mean? The Apostle John gives a clear answer to this in John 21, 19, the next verse. This spake he, signifying by what death, and he's referring to Peter's death, he should, be, he should glorify God. So the price of preaching would be death for Peter. Persecution, oppression, trouble, torture, ultimately martyrdom was going to be his fate. Peter would need rock-solid courage to get through it. That's not, you have to have courage to know that this is going to happen to you. If Jesus told him, you're going to die for me, and you have the courage to continue through it, that, that takes a solid, rock-solid <laughs> courage. You can... Pr- Practically see the birth of real courage in Peter's heart at Pentecost when he was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Prior to that moment, he had shown glimpses of a fickle kind of courage. That is why he thoughtlessly drew his sword in front of a multitude of armed soldiers one minute, but denied Jesus when challenged by a servant girl a few hours later. (laughs) The thought there, like he has courage in front of hundreds of warriors, but a little girl scares him. Then his courage, like everything in his life, was marred by instability. So turn with me to Acts 4.18, and we're going to walk through that a little bit. After Pentecost, Acts 4.18, after Pentecost, we see a different Peter, completely contrasting. Acts 4 describes how Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. In verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18, It says, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. They were talking to these disciples. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John boldly replied in verse 19, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Soon after they were brought back before the Sanhedrin for continuing to preach, so they completely ignored this statement. They continued to preach anyway. Again, they, they told them the same thing. 
in chapter 529. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. That's got to take courage. To stand in front of, of the, the church leaders or the, the religious leaders of the time and say, we ought to obey God rather than men. We're not going to listen to what you have to say. We're going to talk about the things we've experienced because this is what God's told us to do. That's courage. Now turn with me to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and driven by the knowledge that Christ had risen from the dead, had attained an unshakable, rock-solid courage. So it was at this point when the Holy Spirit entered his life that he had that courage that Jesus wanted him to have. In Peter's first epistle, we get a hint of why he was filled with such courage. Writing to Christians dispersed all over the Roman Empire because of persecution, he tells them, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the peering of Jesus Christ. He was secure in Jesus and knew it. Having seen all this, having seen him risen again and knowing that, he ha- that all of them have, and we do, have this waiting for us in heaven, then all these trials, while it seems hard for us at this moment, are refining us and getting rid of all the junk and preparing us for when we get to be with Jesus. <laughs> and he was, he was secure in that. That gave him confidence. He had seen the risen Christ, so he knew Christ had conquered death. He knew that whatever earthly trials came his way, they were temporary. The trials, though often painful and always distasteful, were nothing compared to the hope of eternal glory. Romans 8.18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's a testament right there. I mean, there's nothing in our life that's going to compare to the glory that that we're going to get to experience in heaven. So this is just a a temporary trial, no matter how long it seems. In comparison to eternity, it's nothing. The genuineness of true faith, he knew, was infinitely more precious than any perishing earthly riches because his faith would contribute to the praise and glory of Christ at his appearing. That hope is what gave Peter such courage. As Peter learned all these lessons and his character was transformed, as he became the man Christ wanted him to be, he gradually changed from Simon into rock. He learned submission. He learned restraint, humility, love, compassion, and courage from Jesus' example. And we have, <laughs> we're blessed to have a Bible where we can do the same thing. We can watch what Jesus did and learn from his example on how to act to every situation in our life. And because of the Holy Spirit's work in his heart and in ours, he became a great leader. 
He preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved. That's in Acts 2, 14 through 41. He and John healed a lame man in Acts 3, 1 through 10. He was so powerful that people were healed in his shadow. We see that in Acts 5, 15 and 16. He raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts 9, 36 through, 30, or through 42. He introduced the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And he wrote two epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter, in which he featured the very same lessons he had learned from the Lord about true character. He had become the rock. <laughs> and that was the man he became, and it wasn't because of something he did. It was because of what Jesus did in his life. He was made perfect, or in the sense that he, he, his, face, his faith was tried. But he wasn't perfect according to God's standards, nor are we. But turn to Galatians 2. For a second. In Galatians 2, the epistle Paul, or the, sorry, the apostle Paul relates an incident in which Peter was compromised. He acted like a hypocrite. And this is all after, <laughs> all after Jesus had risen and everything. He acted like a hypocrite. We see a brief flash of the old Simon again. Isn't that a testament to, to how we should, no matter what God's doing in our life, and we, we start to feel confident in ourselves and what we're accomplishing? We need to remember that we are still our old in, in our old bodies, and we will fall again. But if we put our, realign our faith with Him, as we see here in, in Jesus, things will turn around quickly. We need to have that willingness. Peter was eating with the Gentiles, fellowshipping with the same true brethren in Christ, until some false teachers showed up. These heretics insisted that unless the Gentiles were circumcised and following Old Testament ceremonial law. They could not be saved and should not be treated as brethren. Peter, apparently intimidated by false teachers, stopped eating with the Gentile brethren. In Galatians 2.12, we'll start reading in verse 12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, he being Peter. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Verse 13 says that when Peter did it, everybody else did it too, because Peter was their leader. It says, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So the Apostle Paul writes in verse 11, this is why he wrote this, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him face to face because he was to be, he was to be blamed. Paul rebuked Peter in the presence of everyone. As a leader, that's not something we want to, we want to have happen. We, we would prefer you do it privately, but he did it openly in front of everyone. In verse 14, Paul writes, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Turn to Acts 15.7. So to Peter's credit... I'm just giving you a heads up because that's where we're going to be next. To Peter's credit, in this, in this context, he responded to Paul's correction. Instead of taking offense to it and, and trying to continue on his way in his own mind, what he saw right, he got right with, with Jesus and back in line with what he was supposed to be doing. And when the error of the Judaizers was finally confronted at a full council of church leaders and apostles in Jerusalem, it was Peter who spoke up. First, in defense of the gospel of divine grace, he introduced the argument that won. In Acts 15, verse 7, we'll start reading. 
This proves that he turned around. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God, hath, God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So he was essentially saying this group is no different than we are. God has the same plan for them as we do. So there should be no difference. So he turned around. At first he was scared. He didn't have the courage necessary, but then he gained that courage again because he remembered why he had the courage in the first place. He was in effect defending the Apostle Paul's ministry. The whole episode shows how Simon Peter remained teachable, humble, and sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction and correction, and we need to be doing the same thing. No matter how confident we are in, in how things are going, we need to continuously and daily humble ourselves and go to Jesus and, and help ask that we can be teachable and humble and sensitive to the Holy Spirit continuously. So how did Peter's life end? We'll just look at this briefly. We know that Jesus told Peter he would die as a martyr in John 21, 18 and 19, but scripture doesn't record the actual death of Peter. This is, I, there was a, a group in the text here that was a, an excerpt from Eusebius' ecclesiastical history, um, but it was really interesting because it, it kind of explains how he died. All the records of early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. Eusebius cites the testimony of Clement, who says that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. As he watched her being led to her death, Clement says, Peter called to her by name, saying, Remember the Lord. When it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord had died. And thus, he was nailed to a cross head downward. Peter's life could be summed up in the final words of his second epistle. It says in 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. And that's exactly what Simon Peter did, and that is why he became rock. Through all this, he learned courage, he learned love, he learned compassion, he learned humility. All these things through the teaching of Jesus Christ, and we get to experience the same teaching, and we need to be willing to accept the same teaching. The great leader that he became, he became the, the great leader of the early church because God chose to use him and, and put him through these things. And if we ask God to, to I, I, you can ask him to put you through the trials and things that aren't necessary, and that's fine, but just ask that you be used the way he wants you to be used and be willing to go through whatever it is that he's going to put you through 
Because no matter what it is, no matter how bad it seems or how great it seems, whatever you're going through will refine you into the person and the leader he wants you to be. So next week we're going to look at life's, or the life of Andrew, which is Peter's brother, and get a, and get a glimpse into his life. And if I remember correctly, based on the order of, of how he's listed, Andrew's the next one in, in the first group. So he's the, the second in command, if you would, of the, the first group. But it should be a really good and interesting read, and I'm excited to see what, he, what characteristics he can bring to the table that we can relate to. Because I've already related a lot to how Peter went through his life and, and what he learned. And, and it's, it's going to be exciting to keep reading Peter's life. You know, every time I go through it, I'm going to remember a lot of these things, especially the Simon part. I think that one speaks to me the most because it's like, man, so many times I, I look at myself and I realize I'm still my old self. I'm still my old self. Like, and it's, it's humbling because I, I'm not, it's not my strength that's getting me through it. It's God's strength, and, I need, and that's what we need to do. So do we have any questions or comments to add to Peter's life or anything?